Welcome to Indie Film Weekly, a no film school podcast. I'm John Fusco. I'm Liz Nord. I'm Charles Hain. I'm Eric Lures. It's November 8th, 2018. And on this week's show, the 100 greatest foreign language films of all time, how much money you should be asking for up front, and as always, news you can use about new gear, upcoming deadlines, indie film releases, and Ask No Film School. Hello everyone again and welcome back to Brooklyn, New York, the kind of home of No Film School. Uh, in this podcast booth. It's all that remains for now. The Airbnb of our No Film School yes. location. Eric, how how did you sleep in here last night? I slept okay, <laughs> actually. I heard you wake up a few times, though. I didn't want to say anything. Well, yeah, I think we were all restless about last night's big event, and I'm talking about, of course... The Voice. The Giants poaching the Dodgers general manager. All right, all right, all right. Ooh. I think we're all pretty big baseball fans here. Yeah, I think no, come on, guys. We know the biggest news yesterday was Amazon announcing HQ2. Oh, yeah. yeah. That Long was Island City news. and... Washington, D.C. D.C., yeah. Long Island City. Long Island City. Very mm-hmm. crazy. I I remember I was talking to my brother who's in China about it, and, uh, yeah, we were both kind of shocked that that was the choice. I mean, it, like, we were all hoping for the bold St. Louis or Detroit move where they were like, we're going to come in and, like, reshape a city. And they were like, hey, let's go to where rents are already pretty high and transit's already pretty full. And let's let's bring 20 more thousand people there. Did anything else happen? No, not No, okay. I took a bath. Oh, all right. Ooh. Cause for celebration. It's a <laughs> small booth, you know. You get what some I candles going? It's, it's really not your business. It's not that kind of podcast. It's not that kind of podcast. Anyway, so I guess we should move on quickly um, into headlines. And this week, uh, no stranger to lists, the BBC has dropped another comprehensively awesome guide to the cinema with their new one, The <laughs> 100 Greatest Foreign Language Films. Wow, just in time for you not to be, to be, not to be able to watch them on Filmstruck. That's very true. But hey, Criterion, physical media. We were, we've been talking about it. Might as well do it. Womp womp. If you remember three years ago, BBC Culture ran its first major critics poll to find the 100 greatest American films. And if I remember correctly, we actually did an episode reporting on the results of that one. Did we? Am Mm -hmm. I remembering right? Mm -hmm. Great. Number one was, of course, Citizen Kane, which I've never seen. (laughs) What? Wow. Because you didn't go to to film school. I feel like it is like a stalwart film school. It's like you can't escape it. But it's also a fun movie. It's like a great movie. Is it it fun? Oh, yeah. Oh, I, I've watched Citizen King like twice a year for like ever. Wow. I don't know if it's fun. Just, it's not like funzy. But it's, it's not a comedy. <laughs> no. I mean, it's not fun like Adam Sandler is fun. But it's certainly a good case study in filmmaking. Yeah, and it's about what, 95 minutes, 100 minutes? Should... Oh, really? I, I, thought think it was, so. I thought it was like, I just oh, no. always assumed it was like four hours. No, no. Oh, no. It's just because it's black and white doesn't mean it's longer. Yeah. <laughs> also, you can watch it with the Roger Ebert commentary, which is like one of the best. Oh. Yeah, it's solid. Good call. Well, we're not talking about American movies today. We're talking about the world movies. And this year, the BBC, quote, felt it was time to direct the spotlight away from Hollywood and celebrate the best cinema from around the world. They asked critics to vote for their favorite movies made primarily in a language other than English. The 209 critics who took part are from 43 different countries and speak a total of 41 languages. It's pretty cool. Mm. The result, 100 films from 67 different directors from 24 countries and in 19 languages. Who do you guys think? I mean, you're going to read it off the paper, but the French. 
Yeah, yeah. I really, I was guessing Mel Gibson was going to be the big winner. No, for speaking in Aramaic, Aramaic, and Mayan, uh, yeah. bullshit. Like, right. The French can claim to be the international language of acclaimed cinema. Twenty-seven of the highest-rated films were in French, followed by twelve in Mandarin and eleven each in Italian and Japanese. At the other end of the scale, several languages were represented by just one film, such as Belarusian. Come and see, which I haven't seen. It's amazing. Everybody should go see. Oh, I haven't see. seen it either. Oh, it's so great. Romanian, four months, three weeks, and two days. Anyone seen that one? Yeah, it's the abortion about the woman that needs to get an abortion, and it's pretty good. With um Jenny Slate. No, not, <laughs> oh, not come obvious on. child. No, no. Everyone's favorite Romanian, <laughs> Jenny Slate. We're and not as ignorant as we pretend to be, audience. I just have to make that disclaimer. I, this is great because I'm definitely going to actively seek these movies out. Um, unfortunately, Liz, I know we're always talking, uh, we like to have the female statistics on here, and only four of these films are directed by women, even though 45% of the critics chosen to participate were women. So at least they tried to make it equal there. Um, I wrote down the top 20, but I'll only say the top 10 because... We have places to go and people to see. Here they are. But I do want to make special mention. I'll, I'll do the top 11. How about that? Perfect. That's that good? Okay, number 16 was Metropolis, which I haven't seen either. Number 13. <laughs> what? Yeah. That's not 11. <laughs> oh, yeah, used. sorry. Whoa, oh, God. Picking He's up just trying to sneak in. There's one double winner. There's a, there's a, few, there's a few in here that I just feel like should be said. You know what I mean? Number 20. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. The Mirror, Andre Tarkovsky. Number 19, The Battle of Algiers, Gio Pontecorvo, A City of Sadness by Hao Xu Zhen. This is going to be a difficult one for me to get all the way through, but I'm going to go for it. 17 is Agira, The Wrath of God by Werner Herzog, who is a friend of Micah Van Hove's now. Crazy. Um, no Film School contributor, Micah Van Hove. Did you hear about this? No, they've been like hanging. Yeah, they've been hanging. He's been in Berlin with uh, Werner Herzog for the past few weeks. Because they went down to the jungle together. He, he was part of that like fellowship with Werner Herzog, the filmmaking class yeah. in what, where was the jungles of Peru? Yeah, something and his like film that. like Ugh. and then they all make films and Micah made one and his was like the chosen from the peers who did it as the number one film. Like it's kind of amazing. Pretty awesome way to go, Micah. Let's continue down this list. Metropolis, Fritz Lang at number sixteen. Fifteen, Pother Panchali by Satyajit Ray. I you know I what have you if you, can you guys say if you've watched one of these movies as we can you guys say as we, just sure. go just go I oh it's like okay. embarrassing though okay uh John Dewman, twenty three Commerce Quay ten eighty Brussels I. by Chantal Ackerman I you're gonna see, I know I'm Eric's, not all Eric's these, but yeah. uh M by Fritz Lang I. I farewell my concubine I I number twelve. Number 11, Breathless by John Luc Godard. Aye. Aye. Oh, Liz. I know. I can't believe it either. That's this is right. excruciating. 10 is La Dolce Vida by Federico Fellini. 9 is In the Mood for Love by Wong Kar Wai. Aye. Aye. So good. Number 8 is The 400 Blows by Francois Truffaut. Aye. 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 I also had the poster in my college dorm room. Do you get extra points for that? Because i got to go back through the list. <laughs> Number seven is Eight and a Half by Federico Fellini. Aye. 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 Number six is Persona by Ingmar Bergman. Aye. Aye. Number five is The Rules of the Game by John Renoir. Aye. Number four is Rashomon by Akira Kurosawa. Aye. Aye. Number three is Tokyo Story by Ozu. 
No one's I seen own it. it. I, I own it. I own you. it, but I haven't watched it. It's like, number three. And you know how we've talked about those cool things they do at New York Film Festival, where a, like a modern day luminary filmmaker comes and talks about films that influence them. Yeah. Jim Jarmusch at the one I went to listed this film as one of his. It's still on my list. All right, but now we're like shamed. We all have to watch Tokyo Story by like by next next week. week. I'm generally shamed by this entire process. Number two is Bicycle Thieves. Uh, yes. Aye. Aye. Number one is Seven Samurai. Aye. No, you haven't seen it. Really. I don't think I've seen it. Now that's a four-hour movie. I've seen a lot it's of four-hour movie, movies. but I, there's I so that... much samurai action. Yeah, like, it's so Seven Samurai is so good. I know. Well, I've seen the Magnificent Seven, uh, the remake, not the original. Oh, <laughs> 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 yeah, right? <laughs> Wasn't there? Yeah, it's the Denzel Washington one and the one from the '60s with Jenny Slate. Yeah. <laughs> so, what are you guys' favorite? Just to round this out, what are your guys' favorite foreign films? Uh, I like actually Breathless is not my favorite like Godard. I like a Money lot of the, like Weekend, two or three things I know about her, in Praise of Love. But Breathless is the canonical title, so I could see why it would be there. But I wouldn't have selected that from him, for instance. I think Pierre Lefou is my favorite. Yeah, that's very good as well. I, I, a lot from that time period. Well, you said there were sixty-seven filmmakers on the list, so there must be multiple titles from almost half of them. So I bet there's more than one. Yeah, well, there you know, like the if we went further up on the list, you'd get to like Guillermo del Toro and like Pan's Labyrinth is on there. So like a lot of them are more contemporary. It's just like the classics are, of course, in the top twenty. Um, so yeah, where um, Noah? Do we have Igmar Bergman on here? Bergman persona. was a yeah. persona. Oh, persona, not Seven Seal. I'm surprised. That I think that's like, one. They gotta go arty. Okay, okay. Yeah, you gotta a lot go. Of, yeah, a lot of these films are really classic too. Johnny, you were saying there's more contemporary ones higher up on the list. I, I would say generally that like the cinema scene from Israel in the last 20 years has totally, ooh, I don't want to say blown up. It's a bad, bad words for Israel, but it, it has been burgeoning a lot of the shows we like here in the u.s come from israeli shows so i would definitely recommend people check out some israeli cinema any any one film in particular or? nothing come like directly to mind but i would say generally i haven't seen like a bad movie out of israel in the last like decade and there's been a lot um but i think super indie wise Mama tambien is probably my favorite i was gonna say i'm shocked by the lack of like Mexican and Latin Spanish. American presence in the top really 20. surprising, but yeah, as John said, I guess like higher and like in higher numbers, there are. But then Spanish this wasn't even a, one of the top languages. Yeah, this is a massive undertaking. You yeah. know, like sorting out the 100 greatest films of like, regardless of the fact that they're foreign or not, it's just like this is the entire world we're talking about. It's not just America. It's and every decade, like they didn't even narrow it down. Yeah. It's just surprising how much of the like dominant mid-century thing is still part of the top of the list. That's all. It's just interesting that like a whole lot of the ones that we're used to seeing up there are still up there. Yeah. Well, I guess that's what makes some classics. Yeah. And then I'm also kind of shocked not to see The Conformist, although I wonder what Bertolucci made it. I'm sure there's a Bertolucci somewhere in there, um, but I was kind of surprised not to see that one. I think I'll probably write up the whole list, and uh, while we might not have it uh, by the time this podcast is released, it'll probably go out on Friday. Um, so stay tuned and look for that. Cool, and speaking of voting for things, you all know by now that we had Election Day in America this week. There were lots of races all over the country, and there's one I can pretty much guarantee you heard nothing about, but it's actually relevant to indie filmmakers. I'm talking about the fight over the congressional seat in West Virginia's 3rd District, a rural coal mining area where Donald Trump won two years ago by a whopping 49 percentage points. 
Now, what stands out about the congressional race from this week is that a Democratic candidate, Richard Ojeda, was highly competitive in the race. And what stands out particularly for us is how that very unlikely scenario came to be. A wonderful piece on Topic.com by filmmaker Davey Rothbart gives the details of this behind-the-scenes story, but I will share the cliff notes now. So it starts with a local coal miner by the name of J.D. Belcher. Bit of an unfortunate name, but an interesting story. Hey, Bob Belcher. Yeah. Oh. He's he's like related to the Bob's Burgers folks, I think. Oh, I have no idea. But he's, I'm not sure, because he's a West Virginia coal miner. So it seems slightly unlikely. You never know. <laughs> Turns out we all heard about this story. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, this guy dropped out of college at 19. He started working in the mines. And then after many years of hard labor, he was feeling discouraged and dissatisfied. So he bought a video camera. He wrote a script for a zombie movie, and he began to learn to shoot from YouTube videos. The story goes that he built a three-piece DIY light kit out of old dishpans and fashioned an eight-foot camera crane by attaching a wooden dowel to a lazy Susan, which sounds like an article that V. Renee wrote on NoFilmSchool.com. Um, eventually, he got a job as an in-house videographer and editor at a local car dealership. He started doing wedding videos, and then last year, he was tapped to make a bio video of candidate Richard Ojeda. So when he showed up all by himself with one small camera bag, Ojeda was skeptical. But to fast forward a bit, Belcher pulled together a really compelling film. So compelling, in fact, that his unknown candidate from a tiny district gained national exposure with 100,000 video views and appearances on national news. And the polls began to shift in his favor and significant money started to come into his campaign. Now, ultimately, Ojeda didn't win on Tuesday night. But remember that Donald Trump won this district by a landslide. So the fact that Ojeda ended up with over 40 percent of the vote was truly remarkable. And his story isn't the only one like this. One of the most talked about candidates this year has been Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, a Latina Democratic Socialist who unseated a longtime Dem Democratic stalwart in her Bronx district in the primaries and went on to win a congressional seat on Tuesday night as one of the youngest women ever at age 29. Her breakthrough campaign video was made for under 10 grand by Detroit-based filmmakers Nick Hayes and Naomi Burton, who are both in their 20s. Now, under 10 grand may seem like a lot, but people pay consultancy, like candidates pay consultancy firms hundreds of thousands of dollars to make these videos. Um, and I just personally find these stories to be a great reminder of the power we have as visual storytellers. If you feel frustrated about the politics or situation in your area, make a short about it or a 30-second spot. You never know whether this could be the next game-changing viral video. Before I start this one, I just want to say there is a spoiler. Has anyone not seen A Star is Born? And if, if you haven't, are you okay with me? I have not I, seen I, it, but I, you can ruin the ending for me. Uh, I haven't seen it. Uh, you can ruin the ending for me. But if you don't want the ending ruined for you, yeah. listeners, go ahead and hit 15-second skip like yes. eight times. Wait, let me guess. She's born. She is born in the beginning. Okay, so, so, so well, now that it has been out for several weeks, uh, specifics of the film's plot have been well documented and are being discussed rather in depth. Uh, however, some countries are taking necessary precautions with who gets to experience the film, and I'm on the fence as to whether or not this is a good thing, and I understand why they're doing it, but if I'm Bradley Cooper, the director and star, I might have something to say about it. Uh, so th the character commits suicide. Uh, the end of the film. It's very sad. It's very tragic. Uh, Bradley Cooper's character? Bradley Cooper, yeah. Uh, as IndieWire reports, David Shanks, the head of New Zealand Film Classification Board, has demanded the Warner Brothers film include a suicide warning note before the movie begins. 
According to The Guardian, the country's Mental Health Foundation reported similar complaints about the film's suicide to the New Zealand Film Board. The movie was originally rated M, which means unrestricted, suitable for 16 years and over, for sex scenes, offensive language, and drug use. But now suicide has been added to the official classification. Quote, many people in New Zealand have been impacted by suicide, Shank said. For those who have lost someone close to them, a warning gives them a chance to make an informed choice about watching. Now, of course, suicide is no laughing matter, and in fact, it's handled extremely painfully in the finished film, but I'm not sure if spoiling the movie outright doesn't, you know, by helping those extremely sensitive to the subject deter those from seeing the movie as as much as it lessens the film's final impact. So I was kind of wondering, of course, it is... I understand the severity of the situation and you don't want people to become overly affected, but by taking such a risk in spoiling like the end of the film, does that lessen its impact and could that kind of set forth other moments like that? You know, like if you are sensitive to murder or things of that nature, it seems like I haven't heard this topic happen before. I just don't depend, I don't think of surprise as being the most important element for me in enjoying a narrative, right? Like. I've rewatched some of my favorite movies ten times, and I enjoy them more in different ways. And surprise is gone at that point. I think that like asking M Night Shyamalan to include a like ghosts spoiler warning in one of <laughs> yeah, his yeah, movies yeah. for people who are afraid of ghosts will ruin an ending. And his movies depend upon that element of surprise. But for a sort of mainstream, I don't know what genre it's like a weeper, right? Yeah, it's Would a be... romantic drama. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's a genre weeper. Yeah, yeah, I, think, yeah. I think it's a, a weepy. And yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't think that those depend upon surprise necessarily. I so mean, I don't maybe to have the most emotional impact, but I think I also feel like it depends on how it's worded. Like yeah. if it says Bradley Cooper's gonna come oh, in suicide. Actually goes out, yeah. But it, if it says like this movie contains suicide, it could be any character. That's right. True. The supporting that's characters true. could totally yeah, it doesn't indicate specifically who. Yeah, you're right about like how they indicate ratings with like there's sexual content. I'm like, okay, that means that there's someone's gonna have sex during this movie and, and I guess and I'm you're there. just and I'm there. You're just kinda of in drug use, someone's gonna be taking drugs. So you kinda of put all of it together in your mind and you're right it doesn't spoil it in that sense it just felt like this being an important plot point i'm like ooh. yeah i mean airing it right how is it air it's just there's just a message right before the movie starts like right right before the scene it just interrupts (laughs) (laughs) it says the warner brothers film include a suicide warning note before the movie begins so i guess you've already bought your ticket and you're sitting there in your seat and that comes up beforehand so i guess why not just like put it on you know how we have rated r uh, you were just talking about it and then underneath the r rating there's like for sexual content nudity Mm -hmm. drug use uh, kids swearing, stuff yeah. like that. I mean, we've added smoking now yeah. to like that stuff, yeah. so maybe that could be a further inclusion. It seems know. like a sincere movement. Just I was wondering if, as I'm, a filmmaker, if that would be something you'd want. I'm to on do. like the complete opposite side. I I I don't know. I feel like if if people are like going to movies to like experience like to have an emotional experience in some way, like or if it's the filmmaker's job to elicit like emotion from his audience uh like isn't that kind of the point of going to a movie like why are why do you need a trigger warning mm-hmm. at the beginning of a movie like you should be like going in sort of with an open mind that's i mean that's how i feel about sure. shit so yeah but the best way i heard it because i used to have that same reaction to trigger warnings and i used to be like we should all toughen up but then someone put it to me that like when you're taking your friends when you're like deciding on movies with your friend 
you would considerately be like, oh, do you want to see this Tarantino movie? They're super bloody. Like, it's more about just giving people some context of information. And I especially think if we put it on those little ratings cards, like, I never read those. Like, I just go see stuff. But people who aren't aware that they are sensitive to stuff will look at those. Yeah. 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 Good point. Yeah, All better right. than putting it in the middle or the the beginning of the movie, or you know, right before the suicide. <laughs> suicide <laughs> happens now, and then like, the scene. <laughs> it concludes in four minutes oh and God. fifteen seconds. I just have to tell this anecdote. It's not directly relevant, but it's so good. When I saw, um, spoiler warning, uh, Gone Girl, there is a scene in which one character slits the other character's throat. After which, immediately, this person stood up. Is there a doctor in the house? And the lights came on. And someone had a heart attack watching that scene, and, like, a doctor had to come, and then we were all sitting there. And, like, it's a very intense scene if you haven't seen Gone Girl. It's a pretty great one. And then they restarted it five minutes earlier, so we all watched the, like, throat slitting a second time. And and the throat slit was from Doogie Howser, who was a famous doctor. Yes. As we all know. So a doctor was in the house on the screen. Oh, my God. I never thought about that part of the anecdote. (laughs) (laughs) Cool story, bro. Do you have any more stories for us, like of the tech and gear variety? Ooh, so I'm. Uh, uh, let's pivot to actually talking about the thing I'm here to talk about. Hey, everybody, tech news. So our first story this week is that Deity, which is like they're an independent startup, but they're under like the Aperture umbrella. They are not Aperture making microphones. They're their own company, but they're like affiliated with Aperture. They've started shipping their D3 and D3 Pro on-camera mics, which we first saw in person back at NAB in April. On-camera mics shouldn't be a thing. We all acknowledge that. I think even Deity would acknowledge that. Like, you want a boom mic close to the actor or as second best a lavalier. But unfortunately, there's times where that just doesn't play. Sometimes you're out there doing a run-and-gun documentary thing where you're getting interviews with people really fast on the street. Sometimes you're vlogging and you're shooting yourself. And in those scenarios, if the choice is between I use a little mic that's built into the camera or I rig up a better external mic, a better external mic is a step above the internal mic and camera because every single internal camera mic is garbage. Because that's not really their point. Their point is like for voice memos and stuff where you whisper to camera, you're like, this take is great or whatever. They're not for getting really good audio. So DD have come out with two, the D3 and the D3 Pro. They're both all aluminum. They both have the standard 20 to 20K hertz uh, response. They both this is cool, have a little microchip and a smart connector, so you plug it into your camera or your phone, and it can tell what camera or phone you've plugged it into and, like, set itself correctly. Wow. So you can, like, plug it in your phone or plug it into your DSLR, and it'll know what it's connecting to, which is pretty cool. Um, but the key feature, the Pro version has a physical gain knob built into it. So if you've ever been, like, you're out there, you're shooting a DSLR mirrorless job, and all of a sudden your subject starts speaking really loudly. Sorry, John, you're going to have to fix that in post. And you're, you're, like, going through the menus in the mirrorless camera trying to turn your gain down. This is a physical gain knob built in, which is actually really nice. Because, obviously, the biggest frustration we all have with DSLRs and mirrorless is the audio component. That is the hard part about shooting with those. And this little feature is something, honestly, all the little extra on-camera mics should have it. And it's really cool of deity to roll it out physical gain knob is a cool band name yes although there's like an implication in that oh i know that's Uh. all about the implication (laughs) physical gain knob sick (laughs) next up uh there's a brand new uh black magic pocket cinema cage from tilta Cages are cool. It's like an aluminum cage with all sorts of mounting points and screw knobs and stuff like that that you wrap around your camera because the other frustration we have with those little mirrorless and DSLRs is there's nowhere to mount, like, accessory lights and microphones and stuff like that. 
but cages don't really usually make it to our weekly gear news roundup because they're, you know, we sort of know what they are. We sort of know what they do. They're kind of cool. But this one's kind of fascinating because Tilta, like, went crazy. So Tilta have, like, battery accessories for their cage. They have a follow focus accessory for the cage. So, like, the handle has a little follow focus knob on it, and you rig it up to the Tilta thing, and you're, like, pulling focus from the same place you hold the camera for the Blackmagic Pocket. It They went super above and beyond. The Blackmagic Pocket, we're working on a review right now, it'll be up soon, is a fascinating little thing because it's a $1,200 4K RAW camera. So it's, like, very interesting for that. And there's actually really robust connectors, and Tilta is really taking advantage of that and giving you the ability to hook up like way more powerful batteries and an SSD mount and all this other stuff. So we think that is worth a look. Last up, Young Nuo has announced an as yet unnamed, they're going to let the internet name it, mirrorless camera built around Android. Hmm. So there's not a lot of details out yet. Most frustratingly, they haven't announced the lens mount, which is like the thing we really want to know. But the reason why I wanted to cover it is because I'm really excited to see more cameras that run Android. Between this and the Red Hydrogen, we're now seeing multiple camera makers admit that they might not always be the best at user interface. Like, I'm not going to name names, but there are some camera makers that have, like, terrible UI, and it's very hard to do stuff on the camera in the menus. And, like, Android's pretty good, and it's touchscreen. And there should be more touchscreen cameras where you can, like, install an Instagram app and immediately post to Instagram from the camera or whatever video version. Or you can do Instagram Live from your camera directly. And because it's going to be interchangeable lenses and you're going to have a much bigger sensor, you're going to be able to get much cooler footage for things like Instagram Live and Facebook Live than you would get out of your phone, especially in low light. So we are very excited about that. We hope they announce the lens mat ASAP. And since the internet is naming it, we are going to vote for Camera McCamera Face. <laughs> is Young Nuo, like, do we know anything about they make, them? Have they I mostly know them cameras? from lenses. So I don't know that they've really made cameras before. And I'm going to guess that the sensor is made by someone else. I mean, if they're like everyone else, the sensor is made by Sony. Sony makes everyone's sensor. Although they might have another sensor. Like, there are a few other people who make sensors. But they mostly, I know them from lenses. And they're not like a powerhouse in lenses, but they have lenses. So it'll be interesting to see. All right, up next, Ask No Film School. Nicholas Alexander is directing his first major documentary project. Had a ton of questions. We usually don't do multi-part questions in Ask No Film School. But we're going to answer a couple of Nicholas's questions because it seemed really important and he's about to travel internationally. <laughs> um, but in the future, one question at a time, folks. All right, question number one. How much should I ask to be paid up front? 50% up front and the remaining at project completion? This is a really common question. I get this from students all the time. Here's my advice. On a short job, 50% up front and 50% delivery is fine. Totally fine. If you can get them to 75% up front and 30% on delivery or 25% on delivery, you totally should. Because in reality, we all know when you're running the production, that 50% ends up almost all being eaten by the actual production. Any profit, which is the stuff that you're going to pay your rent on, tends to come in the second half, and it can be really frustrating to wait on that. So even on little jobs, if you can get 75% up, I recommend it. 
you might not be able to get that on this job. But this sounds like a longer job where you're going to El Salvador for a while and it might take a while. I would really recommend a 50% deposit, 25% on shoot wrap, and 25% on delivery. Because once you've got the shoot in the can, once they feel like they have a substantial thing, they should be able to give you another sort of waterfall payment. And we really think that that would be very helpful so that you can eat through the post-production process and not be like living on credit cards, which we've heard some people do. So we that is our recommendation. Anything else you ask that I should include in the contract? And we got to say this. You're going out of the country. Talk to a lawyer about your contract. Out of the country jobs are so tricky. And this is one case where we cannot stress enough that having a lawyer who has dealt with this before, an entertainment lawyer going through the contract is so worth it. Right? Our general advice is don't let legal fees eat up more than 10% of a project. You know, ideally legal fees are 2 to 5%. You're doing a $100,000 job. $2,000 for a lawyer is not that big a deal. A $10,000 job, you're never going to get a lawyer for 200 bucks, so you let it get a little higher. But international, get a lawyer. I know so many people who've like been on a job internationally that went sideways, and then they were stuck there for two weeks because the company wouldn't change their flight early. I know so many people that like the shoot had to run extra, and the company didn't want to like move flights back, and they were like, well, it's your fault. It, it went extra, so you should pay the flight change and stuff. You want to get all of that worked out, and an experienced entertainment lawyer will know all of those things and will put all of that structure in place for you. If you are going abroad, you absolutely want a lawyer to look at this contract. Can I quickly add something to that that people don't always think about? Is that if you're shooting abroad, make sure also that your your insurance for your gear and for your health covers you abroad because that's not necessarily a given. And in fact, uh, check out the State Department list. We are actually, I have a friend who's trying to do a production in Salvador right now, and I think they're level four, which means that a lot of, like, even insurance that might cover you in other areas won't cover you because of where you are on the State Department list. So you need to talk to your health insurance and your production insurance to make sure you are covered. And if there's extra fees, it should be on the company. And then you ended with, like, a really nice uh, nerd question, which is, any specific external hard drive backups you suggest? And I was like, yay, nerd questions. <laughs> so first off, in the States, the general advice is two copies of all of your media. But anytime I go abroad, I make sure I'm getting three copies of all my media. Just because abroad, there's way more chances of something getting lost or damaged in shipping. And usually, I try not to fly back with them all in one thing. Like, I'll box up my media and ship it back so it's on a different flight than my flight. Just so it's like, if my bag got lost or if the plane went down... The media survived on the other thing. So if you can split it up, you can. And honestly, on international jobs, it gets expensive. But I've started recommending SSDs because they're so much faster. And some t- like you know, sometimes it takes a long time to make three copies. And Samsung T5 drives have gotten so cheap. A one terabyte is like 250 bucks. So for 750 bucks, you can get three of them that'll give you triplicate backup for every terabyte of media you need to save. And they're way faster to download, too. They're really small. They're bus-powered. I think you're going to be happier if you can find the money for SSD. Good luck. It sounds like a lot of fun. It sounds like a project you're really excited about. And uh, anything else I missed, guys? We do have a podcast about shooting it internationally uh, that I will link to uh, in the post accompanying this podcast um it was from a couple years ago it was like shooting gorilla uh internationally so that could be of some benefit to you as well and now let's move on to movie openings on november 12th on netflix you can watch green room 
We talked to director Jeremy Saulnier a few months ago following the release of his latest Hold the Dark on Netflix, and now the third entry in his stellar roster of films is hitting streaming services. Green Room is about a punk band that gets caught up in a skinhead stronghold after a concert. It was a famously controversial film here at No Film School when we saw it at Sundance nearly an entire three years ago, which is crazy. I really liked it. A few of our other staff members who will go nameless, Micah Van Hove and Ryan Koo, because they are wrong, weren't so impressed. We also have coverage of a panel that Saulnier uh, did at the Lower East Side Festival where he talked about some of the finer points of his craft. I really liked what he had to say about story screenwriting for thrillers. Quote, I try to deviate from standard structure. Green Room was an exercise in tension building. I try not to meet expectations or check the boxes off of what happens in each act, but swerve very violently away from what you think would happen, dig into that, and write myself into corners. The challenge isn't the overall, how should I make this intense structure? It's, how do I keep going with this? And when I find myself without a solution, just sit there and invest in it. That's when people die in Green Room, because I couldn't think of a way out. You can listen to both the podcast interview that I did with him last month and read our coverage of the panel on the site. And now coming out in theaters on November 9th is a film called Peterloo. This is another film that I saw at TIFF in September, and it's from the legendary British director Mike Lee. The historical epic, which is a semi-fictional recounting of the 1819 Peterloo Massacre. Anyone familiar with that historical event? <laughs> I. No, I, I, <laughs> I initially thought this was an episode of Family Guy where Peter, like, lost to Napoleon. Or he goes to the loo, you know. Well, it's, it's neither of those things. It's a uh, massacre <laughs> from 1819, which took place in Britain when British forces attacked a peaceful pro-democracy rally in Manchester. And this film was also nominated for the Golden Lion at the Venice International Film Festival earlier this year. Rory Kinnear leads a cast which was nominated for several British Independent Film Awards. And I got a chance to sit down with the 75-year-old Mike Lee when I was in Toronto, and he passed down some incredible wisdom, especially about working with actors and his own unique casting process. I'll be releasing it on Monday, so stay tuned. It was probably one of my favorite conversations that I had when I was in Toronto. So it's a even if you don't see end up seeing Peter Lou, you should definitely check out this podcast because this guy is uh, a legend. So... That's so cool that you spoke with Mike Lee. I can't wait to hear it. Also opening on November 9th is The Long Dumb Road, which I caught ahead of the 2018 Sundance Film Festival where it premiered. It's a new feature by director Hannah Fidel, and this road trip movie stars Tony Revolori and Jason Manzoukas as two gentlemen strangers united under unusual circumstances. It's a road trip movie. It's I just made it sound darker than it is. Well, what's a gentleman stranger? <laughs> gentleman strangers. You know, it's it's like, they're, well, they're not call men. Uh, I was gonna say, is that people right. who meet at the strip club? It makes or? like it sounds is like there, someone you hire well, there's for a company. Implication. You're right. Yeah. Well, it may maybe that's in the movie. I'm not gonna tell you. I'm gonna meet a gentleman stranger later tonight. Yeah, well, oh my goodness. <laughs> well, now that's, why, you, that's why that's I'm why not. Liz took a bath. <laughs> Moving on to headlines. Uh, cutting through expectations and expanding on the comedic virtue of the masculinity that's determined to prove itself. It's less a film about an emerging friendship than it is about a personal individual growth, and it keeps it refreshingly simple. And by film's end, the two men do not, like, you know, arrive at a stunning introspection or become best buddies. They simply get to where they're trying to go. The movie's pretty light on its feet, and if you enjoy the two main actors, there's much to enjoy here. Shot in 22 days on an Alexa with Panavision anamorphic lenses, it's a film with one eye on its characters and the other on its geography. 
Uh, I had spoke with Fidel Revolori and Matsukis at Sundance, and we discussed filming and performing in tight environments, like the car, and tight conditions, as in a quick schedule. In a post titled Hitting the Long Dumb Road with Hannah Fidel, Jason Matsukis, and Tony Revolori, which we will show on the site. That's tight. Uh, I love Jason Matsukis. <laughs> he was he was sickly, very sickly ill when I interviewed Sundance, him. Sundance, man. Everyone's sick at Sundance. Yeah. Like, I wanted to shake his hand. He's like, no, I can't. And I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> no, no, I'm just, I'm very, very sick right now. I'm like, oh, okay. Yeah, it would have been awesome to get him on the podcast because he is quite the podcaster. Yeah, 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 oh, yeah. yeah. He's a funny dude. And finally, this week, you can check out The New Romantic on November 9th as well. This is one that came out at South by Southwest earlier this year that I really wanted to check out, but I never got a chance to. It's uh, first-time director Carly Stone, and she was nominated for the Game Changer Award and the Grand Jury Prize for Best Narrative Feature at the South by Southwest Festival, but she ended up actually winning the Special Jury Award for Best First Narrative Feature. In the film, frustrated with a lack of chivalrous guys her own age, a college senior gives up on dating for love to date an older man in exchange for gifts instead. Sounds like a gentleman's dream. Exactly! That's a gentleman's stranger. That's a gentleman's stranger. Right, right. Sorry. I'm so I'm so confused about what the long dumb road is about. <laughs> Just watch it, you'll see. Okay. <laughs> Anyways, the film stars Sarah Barden, who is a young actress you may remember from The Lobster or The End of the Fucking World. Shout out to the end of the fucking world. It is amazing. Good, good. <laughs> good. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, now we've got some upcoming deadlines for you. First up on November 13th is the Eurodoc 2019 deadline. If you're looking to pitch your documentary to Europe's leading commissioning editors and you've got the budget for the participation fee, this networking workshop could be for you. Some participants attending the workshops will come from the documentary departments of the broadcasters or from institutions defending, promoting, and funding doc productions. This aims to fulfill a long-lasting objective, that, that of the decompartmentalization of relations between producers, broadcasters, and funding partners. These participants greatly contribute to the work of the group. Being in contact with their future partners, understanding their points of view, and constraints can be very enlightening to the producers. The cost for European par- participants is 2,800 euros, and for non-European participants is 1,400 euros, not including accommodations and travel costs, but they do offer some scholarships, so it's worth checking out. And now for some festival deadlines, with the deadline of November 12th is the Omaha Film Festival, and this is the late deadline. The festival takes place in Omaha, Nebraska from March 5th through the 10th, 2019. Last year, over $32,000 in prizes were given to winning filmmakers. In addition to that, there's a screenplay competition component to the festival, and it's been rated as one of the top 100 best-reviewed film festivals on Film Freeway. I officially switched to Film Freeway last night. Oh. Congratulations. Thank you. Nice. It's from way better <laughs> from without a box. It's uh, just the design of it is so much nicer, and you actually get like more chances to include like promo stuff from your film. So like if you have a trailer or production stills or like a website, it's all on a profile that's easily way more easily accessible to like uh, festival programmers. And I wish that I'd done it from the very beginning because I have 18 submissions on without a box now, and uh, Film Freeway will be what I use for the rest of this period. And you have found that all of the festivals you want to apply to accept both? 
Except for, I mean, they they will now that without a box is extinct. We did a piece, we'll, of, yeah, for context, we did a piece on the show like two or three weeks ago that without a box is closing. So John was forced uh, to switch on freeway. But um, yeah, so there'll be more. Uh, like Sundance was without a box's official partner, so like Sundance, you couldn't submit to on Film Freeway yet, but now. Film Freeway is announcing partnerships with more and more festivals. They have this really great feature now called Gold, where they actually, like, if you uh, sign up for, like, 11 bucks a month, you get pretty big discounts to a lot of festivals. Like, for example, I was submitting to one last night, and it was $80 because it was the late deadline uh, without this sort of Gold subscription. But with the Gold subscription, which is only 11 bucks a month, uh, it was only $60. So if I just spent the 10 extra dollars on the gold subscription, I would still be saving $10 on the actual fee for uh, submitting to the festival. And with a deadline on November 10th, the Garden State Film Festival has their late deadline. This takes place in Asbury Park, New Jersey, from March 28th to the 31st, 2019. Jersey. It's got all the bells and whistles, an opening ceremony and reception, ending with a gala awards dinner where the best in various categories of films and celebrity honorees are recognized. In addition to the screenings, professional panel discussions will be headed by industry professionals. So do they only screen the Zach Braff movie, Garden State? Or can you just make your own I'm film? pretty sure it's just like Bruce Springsteen yeah. doing the opening ceremonies, and right. then they just play Garden State a bunch of times. And then they award the best screening of Garden State. Yeah. Oh, that sounds like a good place to enter. And there's a Jersey Shore Marathon in their episodic oh. section. And the final film festival deadline we have for you this week is the Atlanta Film Festival, uh, which is the extended deadline. It's the last chance to submit, and that's November 14th. The festival itself takes place April 4th to the 14th, 2019 in Atlanta, Georgia. It will be its 43rd year and is the Southeast preeminent celebration of cinema and the flagship production of the Atlanta Film Society. It's an Academy Award qualifying festival. It's been named to Mommy's List and Mommy's Other List of the 25 coolest film festivals in the world. It presents local and international works selected from over 6,000 submissions representing 40-plus countries, and there's cash prizes ranging from $500 to $1,000. All right, Liz, you know what time it is? It's time to bust a rhyme. Oh, oh it's, well. time. <laughs> it's time for weekly words of wisdom. Actually, now that I think about it, I don't think you can rhyme the word wisdom. Anyway, if you can, tweet at us. His thumb? That's cheating, uh, but but good try. Uh, <laughs> last week, I chatted with first-time feature filmmaker Siobhan Mizrahi about her debut documentary, Distant Constellation. The documentary sets up shop in a Turkish retirement home, coming across several colorful characters who are less props than actual characters with wants and desires. Some wish for romance, some for a friendship, and others to have their stories told before going off into the distance anonymously. I'm, I'm talking about death. Um, I asked Siobhan, who made this feature her first, about being pretty much a one-woman crew. She shot it. She, quote-unquote, directed it, edited it. And she says that there's a lot of great films out this year that were made with small crews or just one person. I know working alone is something I was always expected to do for work and often operating three cameras at once plus sound. I was used to that and could almost do it in my sleep. Of course you want a budget and you want to involve more people and have the sound to be as good as possible, but I'm not sure, given the intimacy and comfort and ease and warmth of this project, that it would have been possible with more people there in addition to myself. I think every process offers a lot of advantages and disadvantages, and not having funding means you don't need to get permission to do anything. You can do it exactly as you want. You can work within your own timeline. You don't have to report to anyone. 
You also get to learn new skills. In here, I learned how to color a film. I had never colored a film before. Other filmmakers sometimes now ask me to come work as a colorist, which is not my training. Uh, so I just felt a little bit inspiring that you know working alone can be extremely difficult, but you are picking up traits along the way that you may not have had experience doing in the past. And now she's actually getting hired by friends to do some of those tasks that she wouldn't have thought she'd be possible of doing before embarking on this feature. Eric, what happens to you when you get a little bit inspired? When I get a little bit inspired, uh, what do I normally do? I call mommy. <laughs> and uh, Ask her about her list. <laughs> ask her about her list, and then she tells me the top 100, and then I feel pretty good. Then you feel even more inspired. Exactly. Then you call one of your gentlemen. I ge- call one of my gentleman callers and whip out my Peterloo. And we go... <laughs> Take a bath with Liz. Okay, that's too that. We were wondering where the line was. It was just oh uh, boy. Uh-huh. Just for the record, we do not bathe together. We do on not. This no. podcast. But it's, it's you know, if you want me to bathe with you, <laughs> at, so I can raise money to apply to Eurodoc, uh, please just tweet at Eric Lewis. <laughs> Thank you. How much? How much is the going rate for a bath? About five bucks. Five bucks. <laughs> <laughs> it's gonna take you a lot of baths to get those twenty eight hundred euros. Hey, I'm open. I said I'm open. It's <laughs> not a bad job. <laughs> You have it well. Take there are baths with people. Yeah. If you had to do like a hundred baths, you're gonna get really wrinkly toes. No, that is nasty. Don't have to you gotta be, space like, it out. Yeah. yeah. Gotta pace yourself. Okay. So. Well, those are our words of wisdom. <laughs> Not sure how to reel it back from there. Although I keep thinking about this woman operating three cameras at once. That's yeah. really impressive. Like, Absolutely. how does that even work? Do you go into it in the article? Uh, we go into a little bit more about the actual shooting process. Was and one of them a robot? Mostly... No. Because that's the thing I'm seeing a lot in Doc Cruz now where you're like, I'm hand-holding one, and then there's like one on a robot slider over there that's going back and forth and doing like this like repeat pan loop. I'm starting to see a lot of that kind of stuff show up. That's interesting. I feel like if that happens, that should be in there as a qualifier, that one of your cameramen there's a robot. Yeah, I mean, B-camera by robot camera team. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Well, now that we're back on the topic of documentaries, um, I will move into shout-outs and give a big shout-out to Doc NYC, opening its ninth edition here in New York tonight and running through November 15th. This is truly becoming the top documentary festival in the States. Kind of like New York Film Festival, it's later in the year, so it gets to pick up the best of the films from all the festivals in the sort of previous year. In fact, its artistic director, Tom Powers, also programs the docs at TIFF, So this year there are 300 films and events overall, and it does include 42 world premieres. I'm working on interview podcasts for a couple of them, one with two-time Academy Award winner Barbara Koppel, and one with first-time filmmaker Alyssa Klein and her DP, whose film tells the story of how she found an old Bolex in her attic and discovered that her great-grandfather invented the iconic camera. I'm uh, going to a bunch of the films, so if you're going to be around Doc NYC, find me and say hi. Are you going to be wearing like a special hat or something so people can find you? Don't you have a hat? You have the one that says. Uh, I have my Zeiss hat. Zeiss hat. Yeah. I have my pink, you know, a pink hat. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe I'll wear a hat. I have red hair. I'll be the one redhead at the festival. Okay. Next week's podcast. Uh, I talked about it earlier on the show. It's me and Mike Lee. Last night when I was uh, rereading information about Mike, I came across the fact that we were both born on the same day. Wow. Not like, you know. Not the same year. Not the but, same year, but yeah. we're, we we share a birthday. And uh, I think we also share a lot of common philosophies about how you should treat your actors, um, especially in the casting process. His casting uh, sounds like a dream come true for actors, um, and it's something that all directors should definitely take to heart, maybe uh, adapt some of his tactics 
and uh, you'll be as good as the legendary director himself. So stay tuned for that next week. Uh, of course, subscribe and uh, rate the No Film School podcast on iTunes uh, or whatever podcast platform you use. You can read about most of the stuff that we talked about online at nofilmschool.com. Um, also, check out the podcast post that uh, accompanies this podcast for direct links. I'm John Fusco. You can follow me on Twitter at Jim underscore John underscore Jim. Oh, my God. What's your Twitter handle, Charles I'm at Hain? Charles Hain on the Twitters and the Instagrams. I'm at Eric Lures, as always. You're not going to tweet at me, but I'm still there and I'm not leaving. <laughs> well, now that you've made this bath offer. Oh, God. You, you don't get tweeted at by readers? Not too often, no. Not so much. I'm not controversial enough, I guess. I get lots of tweets. Keep them coming. Yeah, I'm at Liz Film. We're all at No Film School, and we will see you next week. <laughs>